Up next on episode 28 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss Windows Azure, Full Text Search and SQL Server 2008, Bayesian filtering, porn detection, and project management, among other things, from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hello. The person you tried to reach is not here at the moment. Not please here. Please leave you a message after the tone. Voicemail. Um, hi, Jeff. This is Joel calling. And um, so, like, uh, what's up? Uh, okay. Bye. How did how do you get vo- vo- voicemail with with Skype? Hey Joel. Hello. Wow. It is Stack Overflow episode. Stack over overflow flowed. Let's start again. Twenty-eight. <laughs> <laughs> Why you're very very excited today about the podcast? I think a little too excited, frankly. Uh, I just had some coffee. Coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee is yes, so this is this is episode twenty-eight. I do actually know the number this time. I looked it up. So, Dude, welcome to Stack Overflow, episode twenty-eight. That's right, me and Joel Spolisky. Spol- I just want to get my mispronunciation out of the way immediately. Okay, Mister G G. G- <laughs> it's not in you to mispronounce things like it is me. Jeep. Jeep. I got an email from somebody on one of the Stack Overflow aliases um, challenging me to yeah. pronounce his name. And I was like, I'm not even going to try because oh. I will fail. Was it, um, uh, was it Set Yeish? <laughs> no. No, it was somebody from, gosh, I don't even know where. But yeah, the name, it had a lot of those characters that scare Americans. Like yeah. the characters that have crazy A's lines and, and dots. And stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah. I don't even recognize that as real letters. You know, what am I going to do? So pronouncing it is completely <laughs> out of the question at that point. Um, some some uh, some guy who's sort of a, a stalker of mine. Well, he's probably listening to the show. Uh, came up to me at one of the Fogbugs uh, demos, stuck a video camera in my face, and said, "Pronounce my name. Pronounce my name." But of course, oh. I'm an expert at the, the pronunciation of obscure Indian names, so I got it the first time. Really, you got it? No, I had practiced in advance, thinking that this stalker might show up. And demand that really? I pronounce his name. <laughs> I'm impressed. That's quite a bit of planning. <laughs> I, you know, the Fogbugs World Tour was meticulously, meticulously planned. Yes. Yeah, there was a lot. I enjoyed that series. That was fun. Uh, you blogged about that quite a bit as well. Yeah. Times. Didn't have anything better uh, to do. On, on the I have pull, a challenge. But... I have a pronunciation-related challenge for you. Okay. It's not, it's not that difficult, actually. Yeah, I can do um, it. I can so do it. I can do it. The, the new hotness from the PDC was the whole cloud services thing. Ah, right? and Azure. <laughs> yeah. Azure. azure. I, I pronounce it Azure. Uh, yeah, it Joey is Azure. Joey Davila, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing his name as well. Uh, Joey, the accordion guy, 
I don't know if you've seen his blog. It's really fun. Yeah. The accordion guy in the 21st century. He's a really nice guy. He now actually works for Microsoft. He went through a bunch of startups, and uh, he's Canadian. I don't hold that against him. And uh, he's a very cool guy. I got to meet him. And one of the first things he asked me, sort of on camera, they did a little, a little video clip of me, was, you know, how, to, how do you pronounce A-Z-U-R-E? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, <laughs> and, it doesn't matter what the programmers say. All right, finish the story. Well, no, I, now I'm curious about what doesn't matter what the programmer said. That, that's it's my a, entire story. I just pronounced it. It's a color. So the only thing that matters is how, how the interior designers pronounce it. And it's Azure, uh, darling. Azure. I, I see. Azure? Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a cool name. I mean, you've got to give some of them credit for actually picking a name that's not stupid, like Enterprise Edition cloud services, service pack one or whatever. Somebody was telling me today, I don't remember who, that this, this new thing, cloud computing, used to just be called time sharing. Oh, yeah. It's totally back to the future. And well, before that, it, it, we, we just got off of calling it SAAS. And before that, we called it ASP. And before that, we called it client server. Yeah. I call it not having to deal with operating system and operating systems and installing software. That's how mm. I look at it. Alrighty. Yes, it's a pretty big win. But, so the the only hmm. reference I had for Azure was, and this is obs- kind of obscure, so bear with me. Is do you remember the movie A Clockwork Orange? Yeah, sure. Okay, that's so actually Alex- the follow up to A Clockwork Azure. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so there's a line in there where he yeah. and he says it twice. It's about. They're asking me, are you clear? And he's like, yeah, it's clear. It's as clear as an azure lake of unmuddied water. He has this whole little little mini mm-hmm. poem he recites. And like that's always the first thing I think of when I hear azure. It's kind of disturbing, but, oh. you know. That, I got to go, I go rewatch that. I have, I have it on HD DVD. Um, HD DVD, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> funny story about that. I won't go into it, but I do have it in, on HD DVD. So, so I, I, will, I, I, should, I should watch it. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, I haven't seen it since I was a teenager. I do oh, know yeah, the it's... origin. Do you know the origin of the title of Clockwork Orange? Oh, oh God. Anthony Burgess, right? And oh. There's a phrase. Well, I think he wrote the book, but there's a phrase, queer is a clockwork orange. Oh, yeah. I did know that. I did know that. And, and then, then the, you know, you know I, somebody told me a funny thing about that book is they had read the book, and it's got all this crazy slang in it, like droogs and mm-hmm. just crazy made-up slang, basically, where Anthony Burgess is trying to simulate this gang slang. And at the end of it, he gets to the end. He's like reading all these words he doesn't understand. The end of it, there was like a little glossary explaining what all the words mean. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, ah, you know? why couldn't this be at the beginning? You know, before I read this book. Uh, but yeah, it's a great movie, and I've seen it again relatively recently. So, but if you haven't seen it since you were a teenager, I would definitely see it again. It's the kind of movie that I think uh, re- re- rewards repeated viewings at all least right. twice. So. I don't know how we got from Windows Azure to a Clockwork Orange. We're going through color, the colors. Let's colors. do something with red. Yes, red. Oh, <sighs> that's good. So uh, another cool thing that I found that came up in, of course, like a lot of people, I have the ego search going of. And it, the ego search is kind of nice because then I, I can respond to people when they mention me, not in a creepy, I've talked about this before, not the creepy Beetlejuice way where <laughs> I'm always there, <laughs> but in a way where people actually want to have a dialogue with me. You know, or they have some problem, and that you know, they're basically. It's nice to have a conversation. I just so saw that was, again, by the way, at Beetlejuice. I just, I just watched that, uh, maybe for the first time ever. Really, the movie. 
Beetlejuice? It's on all the time. It's it one is of those movies time. that's just on cable all the time. Hmm. Alec Baldwin is hot. <laughs> you, don't, you almost don't know it's him, and then you're like, who's that young man there? Oh, it was Alec Baldwin, the younger Alec Baldwin. Yeah. And Gina, sort of creepy-looking Davis now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, another classic. Um, so the title of this blog post is, it's a good one, Jeff Atwood is trying to kill me. And <laughs> you should actually search for this. Are you, I don't know if you're near a computer, but you'll... Uh, I, I, well, yeah. He talks a lot about you, too. To and kill me. He had some really... It's a long article, but it's really entertaining. I found it very entertaining. Of course, the topic is me, so I'm biased. But uh, I thought he did a great job of, of explaining this story and talking about how... <laughs> He called it the Jewish Goyish dynamic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Boy, uh, I gotta, I gotta read this for our. This is gonna take me like an hour. I know it's long, uh, but he. Oh, there's a cartoon at the end. <laughs> I'll just read the cartoon. This is, there's a he, really old screenshot of Fogbugs there for some reason, and a bunch of advertisements for for all of our competition. What? Yeah. What's up with that, Corey? And you know he's going to listen to this because he listened to all the other podcasts. So, Corey, we want to know what's up with So there's up with a really long post here that I don't have time to read, starting well, I'm gonna, with I'm tr- I'm gonna summarize 45 it, square inches of advertisements for Fogbug's competition. Well, I'm, I'm trying to explain it to you. So his basic complaint is that I'm not fully listening to you, which I, I, I agree. There are times in the podcast, and I've talked about this before, where listening is really hard. <laughs> and a lot of times, <laughs> to be in my defense... Yeah. On the podcast, I, I'm trying to make sure there's no dead air, right? So I'm always thinking, okay, what's the next topic going to be and where are we going to go? We don't want to go, you know, ham and haw because we actually have done that. You, you guys haven't heard it, but it's bad mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. when we don't know where to go. <laughs> so when you hear me not fully listening, that's part of the reason. The other is that I, I, I need to be a better listener. <laughs> yeah, it may just be that so the I'll stuff that I'm saying is complete garbage and there's really no reason to train yourself to listen to me because no, I don't, you'll never get any benefit from it. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think anything you've said has been garbage. I think both – I tend to repeat myself. You sometimes do. I'm much, much worse about it, as you know. But I loved Corey's story because he talked about actually driving in his car, listening to me not listening to you and getting really annoyed. <laughs> and then, like, he gets a, ju- a flat tire. Like, bam, you know, flat tire. And he totally blames me. I blame Jeff. It's oh. because of him that I ignored the noise. I was too irritated, <laughs> too absorbed in the pleasure of being irritated by him. Hey, you know, Corey, when we started working on this podcast, we knew there would have to be some kind, to keep people interested, there would have to be some kind of artificial conflict of some sort. And unfortunately, the best thing we could come up with is Jeff just never listens to anything I say. Until later, like three days later, you send me an email saying, oh, that was really funny. I just laughed at something you said on the podcast three days ago. Uh, yeah, Thanks. unlike Joel, I actually listen to this twice. So I listen, I participate, obviously, in here maybe 50% of what I said on a good day. Uh, but then when I listen to it again to write the show notes, I do actually hear the whole thing. And I find that actually very helpful. And, and they say, like, when you give presentations, one thing you're supposed to do is record yourself presenting Definitely. and then watch it. Oh, my God. It's so painful the first 35 times. So painful. Right. And then it's just so, boring. I, I would say that I, by virtue of the way we produce this show, I am, in fact, learning to be a better listener because I hear everything I miss, right, the second time. And I, and I sort of smack myself on the forehead and go, you really should have been listening Eventually, uh, to it. that. And obviously, it also gives me an opportunity to improve the podcast by hearing it over and over. So, But anyway, I just want to talk about Corey's piece because I enjoyed it. And it's titled, Jeff Out is Trying to Kill Me and... If you have, you know, 20 minutes to kill. Go ahead and Google Google that, yeah. You can go ahead and uh, read that, and I'll link it from the show notes as well. So another topic uh, of interest is that 
we did go to two servers, right? And yes, I, I. You know, I was listening. You know what I was just listening to. Speaking of not listening to anything, I was listening to uh, a couple of episodes that you did with Scott Hanselman on Hansel Minutes. Oh yes, I don't want to be one of those podcasts that just talks about other podcasts, but um, a couple of interesting things there. One is listening to Scott absolutely freaking out at the architecture you used that didn't have two extra firewalls, one in front of the web server and one in front of the SQL server, and uh, an encrypted channel between the web server and the SQL server box. And an arm, armed security guard guarding all that. That's right. So that was, um, it was sort of funny because, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I just wrote this article in Inc. Magazine. Um, those of you to our listeners at home, look for the Inc. Magazine that has Kevin Rose um, on the cover. Uh, about how, you know, there's the Joel test, and it has about 12 steps on it. And I think we probably only did about half of them for this project. Or I guess I should say, Jeff, you only did about half of the things. <laughs> uh, and the article is all about how this is uh, this is sort of a different kind of project. It was sort of a get-it-done, 1.0, mad burst of genius project. Um, and... If you are a genius, which I think you are, personally, you're not listening, so there's no risk this is going to go to your head, um, then then you'll, uh, you can succeed with those 1.0 mad burst of genius things, especially if the idea you're building is, is actually something people want. Um, and there's you know, tons and tons of examples of products that really, really solve somebody's problem in an, just an awful way. Like, everything else is wrong about them. For example, the graphic design on Craigslist. Um, but... It doesn't matter. Or, um, you know, I, we, we could probably come up with a bunch of examples of software products or, oh, you know, Napster had a pretty, really clunky user interface, but it became absolutely popular because it lets you get songs and, and listen to them. So, um, so all those best practices, so to speak, which, you know, I've been advocating for about eight years and talking about, I think uh, are all beneficial and they're all a way to take an average product and, and or an average process and make it a little bit better than average or prevent a risky project from from actually failing. Uh, on the other hand, there's, there is sort of another kind of project, another kind of development process that's a lot more gunslinger shoot from the hip and it can be successful even without doing all of the processy kind of things that we didn't do. Well, what, the one thing I've learned uh, more than anything, is that the people are the by far the number one determinant yeah. of, of success. Oh, for and sure. Think- well, we you, we didn't learn that. Come on, you knew that before. You've always talked about people. Where as have I? I mean, we both. That's nothing new to us. That the people are the single most important factor, and everything else is just like how to how to allow everybody to do a better job, given how good they are. Right, and we have these large built-in audiences. I mean, like I said, I've said before in previous podcasts. I mean, I think we cheated in that. All we really had to do was execute reasonably, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, given our large audiences, and and to your, it's, it's a good team, right? We we assembled a good team. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge fan of yours. You were willing to work with me, so you must have some level of respect for me. I was able to get sort of handpick people that I'd work with, so I was able to form almost like a dream team mm-hmm. uh, to do this. And and that's not to say that we have we don't have issues because we do have issues and. Actually, that's what I was trying to get to. But I, I'm glad you mentioned the Ink articles because we did actually buy a copy of that magazine. Uh, my wife uh, was out. We went to – after PDC, we went to Palm Springs. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, I have not. Yeah. In and the desert we actually, outside of Los Angeles. 
very, very desert-like. Incredibly hot. I can only imagine what it's like. And that was in November. Well, late October. Mm-hmm. Man, it was brutally hot. Um, but yeah, truly a desert and really dramatic uh, place. A lot of they have these giant windmills producing wind, you know, wind energy all over the place. And it's a very interesting collection of people. Plus, one of the reasons we went was because we're into this uh, atomic age stuff, the, the modern 50s style architecture. Mid-century it's, it's modern. A, Yes, thank you, mid-century modern, and it's a total mecca for that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, recent restorations of of homes and stuff that have been done. Everybody's kind of bringing back the mid-century modern ranch, buying those right. little what's the name Nutra? Is that the name of the architect that's kind of famous for the Palm Springs yep. ranch? Yeah, Richard. I think his name is Richard Nutra. I yeah. could be wrong, but we we did the driving tour and went around and looked at all the houses, and they have some house that like evidently Elvis Presley had like a secret honeymoon there, whenever that was, with Lisa Marie Presley. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it was a neat place, and, and very much a desert. I also, a that. lot of gay nudist bed and breakfasts. Absolutely <laughs> chock full. Uh, supposedly, it's 35% gay. It was a very strange, like, just walking around was like, I would see the strangest collection of people. Like, mm-hmm. just totally people that, I'm surprised they were on the same street. So, if you get a chance <laughs> to go to Palm Springs, it was actually really cool. I, I do actually... Uh, recommend I it. think I would go more often if there was an f- easier way to get there from New York, or I would go at all. It's just sort of you have to like connect in Los Angeles. And well, they do have the Sunny Bono Airport. It has all these. Yeah. you know, Sunny Bono was like the the representative there. They have statues of him, and they have the Sunny Bono Concourse. And I got my picture really? taken with the Sunny Bono. That's with funny. The Sunny because, Bono um, statue. We gays are supposed to be Cher fans, not Sunny fans. <laughs> well, I think she's still alive, so she, yeah, you know. Can't, they can't name the airport after her yet. Not yet. The men's room, however, is the shared men's room at the Sunny Bono Airport. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. This has nothing to do with code. That, it doesn't. That's true. But yeah, I know you needed a break sorry, after. I, I blame me. I yeah. got us sidetracked. I just mentioned that we got the magazine in Palm Springs. Oh. Uh, but yeah, check out Inc. Because Joel did a great job of talking about it. And it's actually, the, the article's available online as well. Yeah, it's linked to from my homepage right now. Yeah. Joel, Joel on software. That's J O. Yeah, well, you can find it, .com. Yeah. It's pronounced Jewel. <laughs> <laughs> so is that not correct? I don't, yeah. And your pronoun- name is pronounced Cucumber Face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the actual thing I was going to talk about is the whole two-server split has been a little bit of a wash for us in terms of overall performance mm-hmm. because we've had huge issues with full-text search as implemented in SQL Server 2008. That so was 2005, I think you really found that, you know? I don't think that was widely reported that, that full-text search in 2008 is, if, if possible, even worse than full-text search in 2005. Well, well hold on, hold on. I've got to say, I was very pleasantly surprised with 2005 in terms of full-text search. I did not expect much. My expectations... Or, excuse me, two th- no, 2005. In 2005, oh. hmm. it worked quite well, but I had low expectations. I did not expect it to work very well, and I was like, oh, hey, this actually does work and has reasonable speed, and it does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. So we were very comfortable. You know, and we'd always talked about Lucene.net, and that's still in the cards. And there's also another project, I think SOLR, Solar, something else. But anyway, there's other ways to, you know, attack this problem, mm-hmm. certainly, mm-hmm. in terms of full-text search. But we had sort of a good enough solution in the spirit of, you know, our crappy security that Scott Hanselman talked about, we had something we felt was good enough and would scale reasonably for a while, and then we would just come back to it when we had more time. Uh, but upgrading to 2008, one of the reasons we wanted to do that, because we had two servers, this was a perfect time before we did the cutover to go ahead and just do the upgrade, and it would be relatively painless. And I played around with it, and I really liked the tooling, mm-hmm. and also 
you know, I had reasonably good results in terms of perf- improved performance for most queries. I did see some anomalous stuff with full text, but I was like, okay, maybe we can iron out the bugs. And then we've also working, I got to give a shout out to uh, Brent Ozar, who has completely stepped up and basically volunteered to be our database ninja. Oh, yeah, that guy um, is some kind of a weird SQL Server genius. Yeah, Brent is awesome. It's like I mean, he knows about say, stuff that, that I've never even heard of. In terms yeah, of optimizing Brent, SQL Server. He is truly a quote-unquote domain expert. Like, this is all Brent does. He's a specialist. You know, we're generalists, right? I wear yeah. a lot of hats. I do all the ad sales. I do poorly, I might add. <laughs> I do all the coding poorly, I might add. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do all these things, right? But I don't do any, of the, any one of them that well. Whereas it's great to have a guy like Brent come in and just be totally heads-down focused on, you know, making the database awesome. And with Brent in tow, I felt, okay, we can cut over to 2008 because I have total confidence that Brent can figure this out and help us get the answer. Yeah. Uh, so after that, what we found out belatedly is that they moved the full text into the core SQL Server. Now, this is my limited understanding. I could be wrong. I think this is roughly correct, though. Well, that's a so, good thing because that's a long time coming. It used to, they used to just basically let Index Server handle it, and there were just all kinds of problems with it not being fully integrated. Uh, in this is SQL a classic server. example of sort of be careful what you ask for because... <laughs> well, I asked them to move it in, but I didn't want them to make it worse. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's not actually worse. What's happening is it's blocking because it's now subject to all the, uh, the locking rules. Right, right. Uh, so it Which blocks, is good because like, you don't get the data corruption you used to get the old way when they did it with next server. Yes. Except I'm, that you have, have to pay for that. I have mixed in, uh... feelings about this. I think for some databases, that's fine. I think for our database, it's horrible because we're doing a lot. Well, I wouldn't say a lot of updates, but we're doing edits on the post table, which is one of our core tables. Um, it doesn't actually contain the text and stuff. That's in a table called revisions. But post is getting updated like a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so is revisions to some degree. Um, but what we found was that it just blocks a lot, and to the point that it causes performance problems. Um, and we now, get like SQL timeouts and stuff. We we were never ever ever had SQL timeouts in 2005. And I know I know it's 2008 because we did the cutover on like Friday night. Mm-hmm. I think it was Friday night. And the week before, it was fine, right? I mean, and and, and it, we have two servers that are literally identical. I mean, there's very minor differences, but hardware, memory, operating system. All that stuff is the same. The database just couldn't have changed that much between Thursday and, say, Sunday and Monday. <laughs> it didn't get, like, ten times larger or anything. Right. And it just sort of fell off a cliff on, like, I think it was Tuesday. Um, so I, I felt week, very That's when the that weekday it, traffic starts to build up again from the weekend. Yeah, so I yeah. felt like, you know, it, it, the one variable in the system was, was SQL. So I felt pretty sure... Uh, had to do with that. So we're still looking at that. We don't actually have the right answer. We're working with the SQL team, and actually Brent is doing a great job. He set up virtual machines, and he's done all this incredible work uh, for us. And I'm actually going to add him to the team, the About page as part of our team because he's done so much for us. Awesome. Uh, I feel a little bad about it, actually. <laughs> but he's done a kick-butt job, and we have a dialogue with the SQL Server team, uh, and we'll see what happens. I'm not optimistic that they're going to be able to do anything because it sounds like just an architectural thing. No, the, you know be- the, the best, if you're really lucky, they'll, they'll get it fixed for you for, um, you know, SP1 or something, but I don't think they're going to get uh, like a quick fix out. It's yeah. hard to believe. Yeah. Well, they can do hot fixes. Like they've gotten better. Microsoft actually used to be really pain in the butt to get a hot fix. Like you had to call and like talk to somebody. Yeah, and you had to be like actually- General Motors too. Well, not necessarily, but you had to have like a legitimate issue, otherwise there was a charge. And, but now they've gotten much better about that, where you can actually get hot fixes without having to call somebody and 
hmm. you know, jump through all this flaming. Hoops. I mean, how do so you get with it without calling somebody? Like it just they just they just read your mind or something. They they read your blog and they're like, I got a patch for you. <laughs> <laughs> you must have to talk to someone. Yeah, the process was kind of painful. I mean, you have to know that the hotfix is out there. A lot of information is on blogs, and they would say, oh, go get this hotfix. But in the battle days, to get the hotfix, that means you have to pick up the phone, call yeah. a support rep, go through the phone tree. I mean, just basically waste 30 minutes of your life to get a file. Hey, you know, some people you know? don't realize Microsoft has this thing called developer support. A lot of people just give up. You know, they're having some trouble with programming Windows, programming .NET, programming SQL Server. And um, there, is a, there is a number you can call for developer support. And I found that when I call them with a problem that's actually like a bug in their code somewhere, something they did, uh, wherever it may be, uh, within a matter of 24 to 48 hours, I'm actually speaking to somebody on a dev team. In other words, they do have, when you call developer support, it's expensive. It's like $200 or something. Um, although they don't charge you if it's not your fault. Uh, you know, if you think that you've got a bug in Visual Studio and then compile or something like that, Developer support is very surprising, but you will eventually get somebody, you will pretty quickly get somebody who can help you, and they will escalate it all the way to somebody who's at least in the same hallway with a dev team. Usually every dev team at Microsoft has uh, some product support people working in the hallway with developers. And um, I've gotten the weirdest things fixed that way. So um, I've had, I don't know, people, people may just think that there's no hope of ever getting good results out of developer support. So I should say to our listeners, just try it. That is true. And I think I've just fallen out of the habit of using support. And just in terms of most of my interactions with support, and I'm not calling out Microsoft here. I just mean in general. Like if you need support X, where X is a product, um, generally the community is going to give you better support. Absolutely. And you sort of feel like, you know, when when you have a problem with, you know, a cell phone or some deep, dark technical thing, you get the feeling that if you call support, you're going to be explaining to the support person some of the technical details, and you're going to realize that they don't even have the IQ to understand what you're trying to explain to them. But uh, surprisingly, I found that that is not the case with Microsoft developer support in particular. So That is true. I think once you get past the first line level of support, they do have like yeah, some pretty good developers on Q. I mean, I've actually done that before. Like we had this—it's a long story—but some virtualization problem that turned out ultimately to be, we think, a hardware problem. Um, and we got some pretty good help out of that. Yeah, and it, it sent us in the right direction. So I view it as you know something where you're totally desperate. But in, in this case, we do have members of the SQL Server team engaged with us. That's great. Um, so we have their attention, and but they're not going to they fix it. I mean, the, what what I would suggest. So did you did you stick with 2008 and we're just suffering, or are we going to roll back to uh, 2005? Well, this is what I was going to talk about. So ironically, what a number of people have recommended on Twitter and other places now is like you have to use no lock, which brings us full circle. Remember the whole yeah. locking issue I had early on with 2005 where you know, I looked at no lock and realized you know, that's kind of a blunt instrument. It's like a sledgehammer. It's like, okay, I don't care about transactional stuff at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the case of search, I do believe that is in fact true. And I'm going to have to double check because – one limitation of we use link to SQL. Mm-hmm. One limitation of link to SQL is you cannot do anything with full text in link to SQL because the the language uh, pieces just don't exist, which yeah. is kind of annoying, right? It's kind of a uh, kind of an oversight in my opinion. It's sort of more than so, an oversight. It's like an architectural oversight. It's like if link isn't good enough to handle new things that show up in the syntax of SQL, there to me that says that there's something architecturally wrong there. Uh, you would think they could extend it. Um, I, I don't know what the status of that is. I'm, I'm hoping they get to that. But since it isn't in there, the, the flip side of that is all of our 
full text work is SQL strings, right? Because there's no other way to do it. Right. So I can easily add no lock. And I don't think I had been, I think I had gotten out of the habit of adding no lock to stuff just because I felt like uh, read, what do we call read committed? I think read committed is yeah. our current transaction level. Well, if read you search, you obviously don't care. Well, exactly. I think there are scenarios, and this is a discussion I would have with Jeff Dalgus, a team member who is very gung-ho about not doing this. And I said, well, sometimes you truly don't care as long as it's not generating exceptions for you, as long as you're getting corrupt data back. It can be out of date, and it really doesn't matter. Yeah. So I think it's appropriate on trans- whatever the transaction is, say your SQL is your transaction, to say, hey, you know, just give me whatever. Right? Search, I don't- especially full-text search, is always like a best effort. Like you're going to be happy if you find it, if you don't find it, but it's there. You're not going to call that a bug. Yes. So I'm I'm a little disappointed too because I actually got to the point where we went through a couple different versions of search where I was actually using search in myself a lot, like our internal search. Mm-hmm. I felt was actually pretty good, <laughs> um, but now it's a little disappointing because some of the predicates you can put in will cause you to time out and things like that. So. It's a little tricky. So, yeah, longer term, I'm going to look at no lock for now, just see if I can alleviate some of the load. Um, and then, worst comes to worst, we are going to roll back to 2005. I really don't want to do that. Some of this stuff, you know what, I hate to editorialize here. Let me just insert an editorialization here, which is something I've been bitching about at Microsoft for the longest time. The, the SQL team not taking search seriously. The fact well, no, that no, no, no. I don't think that's a fair characterization. I don't think that they didn't take it seriously. I think they didn't should... take it seriously enough. They really didn't. The well, fact that there's no link expression for full text search because yeah, that's, that's it's thought of, of as like an optional feature, like an extra thing. You know what? There, there are Google these days, by comparison, is building user interfaces that rely on search. They, they, they start with search as a way to do your user interface. For example, you know, Gmail doesn't have folders really. I guess you could probably make folders or tags or something like that. But it's just like throw it in the archive. Just throw it all in there. We'll search it later. Right? They, they start with search and they get better UIs and they get better apps because they trust that search works because search is bedrock for them. And at Microsoft, search is like optional second thing that we'll do after we get you know, your 1953 style queries working. And, and, and that's something that I think, you know, like um, you know, Adam Bosworth once told me uh, in person, he, 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 he this is uh, uh, the guy that invented, uh, well, he was very, very, very active in XML. Um, he was the group program manager for Internet Explorer 3 and 4, I think, um, several like, major important versions of Internet Explorer. Um, he created Microsoft Access. He created Reflex while at Borland. Uh, this is a guy that's built a lot of very, very important systems, designed and, and engineered them. And uh, he went from Microsoft to Google. And after he'd been at Google for about six months, I, I talked to him and he said, you know, Google uses search the way Microsoft uses the if statement. For them, it's just, you know, they, 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 they think of that as, as a primitive, not as some kind of optional fancy feature that you add on later. And that's really where we are. And when, when, when something like, you know, if you tell me that Link doesn't have full text search native, as, 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 you know, it's just an, an afterthought that hasn't been thought of yet. That, that to me says that they're still like a generation too old, I think, in their thinking uh, about development. Because it's just not, and, and, and you know what, the quality of the search results isn't good enough yet either. I don't know what they've changed in SQL Server 2008, but compared to Lucene, it still has that weird quality where the top result is the one that uses the search term the most frequently. Right. Well, what other algorithm can there really be? 
Um, in this case. Oh, geez. You can, uh, I can think of about a million things in the case of Stack Overflow. Um, for example, uh, the top search result might be the most recent, or the top search result might be uh, the one that you've seen before, because you might be searching something you've seen before. So the fact that you've seen or are involved in a particular article might cause it to rank higher, or uh, the number of views. In other words, you, you, you as, as a web designer, as a, as a developer, you, Jeff, have all kinds of ideas as to how you might want to rank search results that are all of which are better than the one which contains the search term the most frequently. Well, right. But the way I was doing that internally was I was – there's a table you can get of rankings. Uh, mm -hmm. I forget the exact word off the top of my head. But it gives you a table that has a number that's just an arbitrary representation of what SQL Server thinks. And it's some algorithm, actually. I'll put this in the show notes, but it's an actual algorithm that's published. It's very obscure. Like I couldn't find much on it. Um, so that number is, is not Microsoft's imaginary number. It's some published algorithm somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would take that and then – Actually, I did several full text searches, and then merged the numbers, and you know, inc I can add like votes to that. You know what I mean? Like I, I would yeah. tweak the numbers. You can, you so I was can kind of doing that. Kind of tweak, yeah. Yeah. All right. I just needed to work. That's really. <laughs> it's not terrible, you know. It's just not. It, it's just not a primitive, you know, and and it really should be. It's sort of like, it's sort of like C was never a good enough programming language, because they never got off their asses and made a string a built in type. And, you know, yeah, we're all going to use strings. Please don't punt to the library designers because the library designers are never going to build a good string class. <laughs> I, th I think that, that was sort of one of the fundamental things that, like, as soon as the garbage collected languages like Java came along, um, Java, C Sharp, et cetera, and just finally admitted this string could just be a built-in and it would be okay and the world would not end, uh, you know, a million problems went away. Right. So I feel like it's the same thing. At this point, search... You know, we're kind of working. Um, you know what? I actually, uh, uh, I take it back. I don't think I'm. I, I think I miss. I just misquoted um, uh, Adam Bosworth because I think what he actually said is that Google uses Bayesian filtering the way Microsoft uses an if statement. Right. Is that possible? I actually remember. Yeah. That, so that's more likely. And but but uh, a Bayesian filtering being sort of like a um, an, an artificial intelligence technique, an AI technique, which is um, what Paul Graham proposes for spam. Um, it's just kind of like the idea of understanding that you're not in a world with four results where you have to compare them each to see which ones are greater than zero and which ones are less than zero. You're in a world with a million results, and you're looking for a half dozen that might be useful. Or you're looking to mostly remove most of the spam from somebody's inbox. And if you can't do it perfectly, whatever. You know, we're in, we're in, it's kind of more, a more organic world with much, much larger data sets. Um, you know, another great example of this, I think, is the fact that uh, I think to this day, the word spell checker, yeah, I'm sure to this day, the word 2007 spell checker uh, thinks that my name is a typo, which is fine. I don't want my name to be in the word dictionary. But you know what? The Google search engine does not think that my name is a typo because a lot of people use my name on the Internet. So, Spol right. so Spolsky is always a typo to Word and, and is not a typo to Google because – because for Word, it's like, let's make a list of all the correct spellings of all the words. And that's the 1970 technology for making a spell checker. And for Google, it's like, what are the most commonly used words on the entire internet and in the entire corpus of the whole world? And, and that's but what they use. It's kind of a little bit of an unfair comparison because the world of Word is pretty much the world of your PC. 
I mean, unless word gets you know hooks. Well, into well the it has millions of hooks to the internet. They 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 made thousands of hooks to the internet. And you know what? And I can type Atwad at Google, and it will say, "Are you looking for Atwood?" And right. and Word won't do that. And th- th- there's there's eighteen thousand internet features in Word. Are you kidding? There's all kinds of useless internet features in Word. Did you know you can in Excel you can say file open and type a URL, and it'll do this horrible thing where it goes and fetches that web page and tries to paste it into a spreadsheet, makes a big mess out of everything, except for the tables, which it neatly puts into tables in Excel. And you know it's got all these internet features, but they're just the wrong internet features. Right. So let me see what you're proposing in that specific case that you mentioned where. You type in a name, and you feel like it should recognize the name. So maybe the approach from, I'm thinking like a software developer now, would be to use the local dictionary first. And mm. then if you're not connected to the internet, that's all you get. And then in addition to the local dictionary, go out and search the internet for that word and see if there's other words that are similar. Google has I mean, some kind of algorithm they're using. With the, when Google says, did you mean? There's some kind of algorithm where they say, whatever that thing that you just typed, there's something that's really close to that, which is much, much more common. Right, and I had always heard that what they did, nobody actually knows because it's like you know secret sauce, their formula they don't want to disclose, mm. but that it was a search followed by another search. In other words, there was this Bayesian thing that you're talking about, right? Isn't that inference of paths, right? No, you don't have to do a search followed no? by a search. No, you, you just have to, like if I type Atwad, it says, all right, there's 2,000 results, but it knows that for something which is really similar, Atwood, there are 11, 11 million results. And so it mm. says, you know, whatever that thing is that you typed, there's some other thing that is a typo away from that or a, or a misspelling away from that that has far more results and and therefore right. and 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 what it's doing is something that it, it that produces the same information that is in the word dictionary right all those spelling corrections that it knows about it's just not hard coded it's sort of based on um actual usage of words in the entire universe of the internet right well i think what you're seeing is the replacement of sort of machine intelligence with Basically, people crowdsourcing. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at PageRank, that's basically crowdsourcing popularity. Like, if I link to you, that builds your link juice, and then right. that pushes you up in Google rankings. It's not like there was some machine that decided, oh, this content is really good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to rank it number one. It's a bunch of people all linking to it. I mean, people create these links. So, I don't so, know. This, this is my editorializing, is, is complaining about Microsoft not having this, this large-scale vision of where we've moved to now. And the kind of apps that we're trying to develop and the kind of technologies that we need because they're still thinking in terms of like rows and columns like 1950 databases. I haven't looked at, uh, you know, another good example. Uh, somebody should look at Oslo, you know, the Microsoft project to make a new modeling language. There's the M modeling language, I think. And I actually Oslo. looked at that book. I did a podcast at PDC, mm-hmm. Deep Fried Bites, and they brought that up. And he brought the book out, and I was just paging through it. And it, it, why would we need, uh, at the risk of sounding completely ignorant, what is the point of a modeling? What, what, what does that do for me? I, I just didn't get it. I mean, I, uh, I don't know. I think it's like UML. I'm not sure. It's not something we, we have to do. <laughs> well, it was, <laughs> it was for language planet. designers or something because I saw Don Box was very excited <sighs> about it and Chris Sells, I think. And I read the introduction and I was just like, I don't know. This just seemed like another one of those. Architecture you know, astronauts? Well, exactly, exactly. And hey, you know who said architecture astronauts to me, by the way, that reminded me? Ray Ozzy brought that up. He looked at me, and although you came up with a term, maybe. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's like, I think sometimes we have architecture astronauts at Microsoft. So he did actually bring that up in the context. Well, of he was the original. He's the classic architecture astronaut <laughs> that I was referring to, I think, in the original. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I was talking about whether Groove was architecture astronaut, sure. 
Yeah. And well, uh, maybe, maybe maybe he's getting the message. I don't know. No, I, I think he really is an architecture astronaut. And it's lucky because his job is to develop architecture. And there are really only three or four people in the world right. <laughs> whose job is to develop architecture and for whom it's appropriate to be an architecture astronaut. That's very true. I, you know, I think a lot of people said I didn't. I didn't go to the PDC, but I heard from uh, you know, like uh, Paul Thorat kept saying that he was just really, really boring, and I think that's usually a sign of talking architecture a little bit. Yeah, those keynotes, man. I'll tell you, they need to hire somebody to just. Uh, it just seems like up. I could deliver a better keynote. I you mean, think, have I, they I'm have they that, never but... gone to an Apple event to see what a keynote yeah. should be? That is true. I will say that Steve Jobs does a kick-butt job on but delivery. But all you have to do is see that just and just know it. that that should be your ambition. Well, I think part of the problem is there's two audiences for these keynotes. One is the developers and the people doing the work, and, mm-hmm. and the other is like press and analysts. And I think they try to satisfy the press and analysts. Hmm. And I think what they should do is have separate events for those people because I do not think you can use the same language. You're going to disappoint a significant percentage of the audience by – dumbing it down to the press analyst level is the way I look at it. Yeah. So maybe Apple doesn't do that. I don't know. But I agree that Apple is a good role model. And it's just a shame in this day and age that they can't quite figure out how to deliver a really good keynote. And, and that said, some of the people do a good job. Like uh, Scott Guthrie always gets like a standing ovation because he's like a real developer. And he just shows you cool tools. Like he shows you the stuff. He doesn't spend time describing it and talking about what he's going to do. He just shows you, here's this cool tool. I'm going to do X with it. You know, and that's what that – the analysts don't want that, obviously. I remember in uh, in 95, one of the best – it wasn't a keynote. It was a session, but it had about a million people there. Uh, the 90, 1995 uh, – sorry, the 2005 PDC, Hillel Cooperman, who was in charge of the user experience for Windows, um, talked about a lot of the places in which the Windows user experience isn't great. And one of them he talked about is when you buy a Windows laptop, it's got about four little crappy stickers all over it. And, like, if, if you were buying – that's just not first class, you know? That's just – cheap to have these dumb little stickers on it, Intel inside and powered by blah, 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 and a little Windows they, sticker. They get, to be clear, they get paid to put those stickers yeah, on Yeah, I know, right? but they should. Well, Microsoft is one of the companies paying for paying, you know, yeah. and they can stop. Uh, the, the Windows sticker is, is one of them. The other one is an Intel sticker, and, and, and now everybody wants a friggin' sticker. And can you imagine if you bought a Lexus and it had all kinds of crappy little stickers on there? So, um, so he said. So Hillel Cooperman stood up and said, "You know, we're gonna we're gonna stop these crappy stickers. We're gonna because that's a part of why people love their Macs, and why the Mac laptop is so much more elegant than a PC piece of junk laptop with all of its crapola on it." And the audience stood stood on their feet and cheered for like an hour, and they were just. <laughs> Not not so about this. Of course, Hillel Cooperman no longer works at Microsoft. <laughs> so there goes that. What does he do now? I'm going to have to look him up. He I'm works curious. for a sticker company, I think. <laughs> a sticker company. Good. Good one. <laughs> I, like I, I have no idea where uh, where, where does he work. Sometimes worked. I feel like you tell these stories just so that you can tell the little punchline <laughs> at the end. It's like you don't even care about the story. It's like, oh, and he works for a sticker company. But, um, you know. He has his own company called Jackson Fish Market. Oh, Jackson Fish Market. They did. Yeah, I know them. What a crazy name, by the way. I like it. Memorable. Memorable, though. You don't forget that one. So one of the things you had mentioned us doing on the podcast is picking things on Stack Overflow, uh, topics, and actually talking about them. Yeah, let's and do I that. Gotta, that is I got to say, I, I have a good one because as you were talking, and I am listening, to be clear, I'm listening to what you're saying, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. But I was just 
browsing stack. Well, I want to make stack, sure Stack Overflow is running because we have had some issues of late. <laughs> so I do like to occasionally go in and make sure it's still up and running. And we, to be clear, we have an email notification service. So if it truly goes down, I actually get an email. So I, I do know when it's down. Um, but one that I just saw was showing too much skin detection in software. This is hilarious. This is what I love Stack Overflow. This is a legitimate programming showing question. Showing too much. Hey, how do I get my friggin' I've been bookmarking things. Where are all my bookmarks? Oh, they're on my uh, page. Go to your yeah, your user page, and then it's the far right tab, I believe. So what this guy favorite, favorite. is asking about is the image processing stuff, where is there some procedural way to yeah. look at a picture and say, okay, there's too much skin. This must be Porno. you know, pornography, basically. And uh, you know who did a good article about this uh, using commercial off-the-shelf stuff that supposedly does this is Dan of Dan's Data. I love Dan's Data. It's an Australian guy, oh. but he's awesome. Mm-hmm. And he did a, his, his writing is hilarious, and he's a great writer and excellent technically. And he did a, probably def, the definitive article on this, in my opinion. The short answer is it doesn't work, which right. you and I would probably know. It's kind of like, you know the Homeland Security thing of like the face detection software they keep talking about? And, and like every works. time I hear that, I just cringe because I'm like, there's just no – the software engineer in me, and not that I'm the world's best software engineer, knows that this is impossible. Right. What they're described, there's no way this right. can work. It's like I might as well go up to people and say, you know what I'd like? I'd like a rainbow-colored unicorn, and I want you to make that for me. That's, like, e- okay. that's easier because then you just take a horse and you spray paint him and you stick a corn on his, on his head. <laughs> Or uh, what do you call it? You know, or... I just cringe when it, it's just yeah. bad computer science. No, and I do. It's it's obviously just an attempt to get money out of the military industrial complex. It's not bad Ugh. computer science. It's it's a it's a fraudulent way to by, by various companies to try to make make money off of terrorism. Oh wow, you think it's actual fraud? Yeah, they that know far. that it's never going to work. Yeah. Okay. But it doesn't well, matter because they... you get a research project and get a bunch of things, and then you you know we'll make it better and better and better. And you can always talk somebody into, well, maybe we can make it better next year. Or you know, even if you get one out of a thousand, think about you know how many lives you'll save. Blah 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 blah. And the trouble is that the statisticians know that as soon as you have, given the tiny number of actual terrorists in the world that try to take planes and blow them up, mm-hmm. let's say what is it, one out of 10 million, pa- no, one out of 100 million passengers on airplanes are intending to blow up the plane. Let's say it's one out of 100 million. That, that's the number of actual positives. That if you get a false positive, one out of, let's say, 100,000 passengers is a false positive, that means the actual number of terrorists in the positives that, that, you're, that, you're, that your software is flagging is still like one out of a million. Right. You know what I mean? In other words, a statistician could look at this and say, there is no possible way unless you got, you know, nine sixes reliability. Nine sixes? Nine, nine, nine sixes. Ten sixes. <laughs> That's a got... very unreliable surface that you're building over there, Joel. The trouble is that it sounds like you're like, hey, it's all, you know, it, it works, you know, 99,000 out of 100,000 times, which it doesn't. But uh, even if it did, it's still useless. It's still right. useless. So, so statisticians should look at this, even without knowing that the software is never even going to come close to working. Should should yeah. know that it's a, a ridiculous idea, but it's the kind of thing that you can fool enough people about. I, I think that I always thought that when um, the Newton came out and tried to do handwriting recognition, uh, that this was another one of those categories of things that's just you know, you, it really can't be done. And uh, Scully should have known this, but he was not a technical guy, so there was no way for him to know that what his engineers was telling him was BS and was never going to work. Yeah, that has never really gone anywhere. Did you ever learn the uh, graffiti, which was the palm 
It wasn't really no. You had to learn a special way that. of writing. Yeah, once you learn a special way of writing, then it would recognize you know pretty decently. But um, even then, though, even even with the special way of writing, it was fun. It had a little game. I forget what it's called. I think it was giraffe. But you could play it. You could like learn to write, and it was actually fun to learn. Mm-hmm. But like even like once you learn the patterns for the letters, it would still get them wrong occasionally, which is frustrating because then it's like you're learning this special way of writing, and, and even it's not then, even working. Yeah. Even then, it's not. It's like ninety-eight percent, which it's still annoying. It doesn't sound like much, but it's it's enough to be frustrating. Ba- basically, so, voice voice recognition, pattern, uh, handwriting recognition, face recognition. Th- these are. It doesn't take long as a programmer before you realize that these problems are very, very far from being solved, and the current approaches are just not getting anywhere closer to solving them. Well, you know what Google's doing now with machine translation is they're taking a different tack where. It's kind of like the crowdsourcing thing we talked about, where yeah. rather than having these algorithmic rules, okay, this word means this, these these three words mean this in this language, they're actually somehow using the, the vast corpus of stuff that Google has indexed in each language mm-hmm. and just doing some sort of statistical analysis to try to solve the problem a different way. And that's kind of crowdsourcing it, right? It's like They also, they also I, do actual crowdsourcing where they say, can you suggest a better translation for this phrase? Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. They do do that. And so, I think that's and, another example of Google thinking really, really big. You know, when, when, whereas companies like Microsoft, I think, are still in the world of the if statement, thinking of individual algorithms. And Google is thinking, well, what if you had 5 billion people working on this problem? Well, I think, too, you have to realize that I, I don't think Microsoft has done a great job of outgrowing their PC roots. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, the vision state for, statement for Microsoft was, you know, a PC on every desktop. And now we essentially have that. So their mission is accomplished, right? It's like, what do they do? And I, I don't think enough people at Microsoft get the whole interconnectedness of everything. And it, it sounds like such a simple thing not to get, but I, I agree with you. It's like so many of their products, like right. t- lack of search integration and just not be able to break out of that desktop mentality. Well, you I know, I don't know why that is. In my experience, when I was at Microsoft in 91, so this is, um, geez, <laughs> like a billion years ago. Wow. Well, that was almost 20 years ago. You're old. You're going to die soon. So I, when I got to Microsoft, the people that were in charge and making the decisions were all 10 years older than me. And they had all graduated like in 81. So when they graduated from college, they didn't even have email in, in school. And when I graduated from college, we had Usenet and email and FTP. And we didn't have the web yet, but we had a bunch of the stuff. And, uh, you know, even if it was just Usenet uh, and email, that was, uh, that was significant. And Microsoft didn't figure out what this Internet thing was until uh, I think it was Jay Allard who went back to his alma mater uh, or maybe it wasn't. He was on an interviewing trip on Dartmouth, and he wrote this famous email, uh, Dartmouth is Wired. Maybe that right. was, yeah. um, maybe that was that Steve Snosky who wrote that. Uh, Dartmouth, I'm searching for that, is Wired. I'm pretty sure it was... Uh, Let's get this right. Since Well, I'll link it in the show notes for sure, because you brought it up before, and you're right. That's a pivotal moment in certainly Microsoft history. Um, yes, and I'm pretty sure. I, let's let's just say I can't find it. Let's just say it was Sanofsky. But anyway, it was um, uh, you know one of the one of the one of the Microsoft execs who had graduated a little bit too early to really know what was going on on campus. Um, and I think that still happens today. That e- even today there is a generation at Microsoft that grew up on Facebook, and that's the youngest generation. But they they don't make any decisions. The decisions are still being made. And the trouble at Microsoft, though, actually, is that now there are these people who have been there for so long. You know, who have been there for 30 years, who are kind of guiding the direction of the company, 
and who, you know, they might have gone out and seen it, but I don't think they have quite, they don't quite have it in their blood the way the younger people do. And um, not only that, but Microsoft is so big that it's possible to just kind of live inside Microsoft and satisfy all your technical curiosity at Microsoft. So whereas a small company like my company or your company, we kind of have to pay attention to what everybody else is doing because there's just not enough interesting going on in our own lives. You know, we have to look at other companies. At Microsoft, you could be busy all day just, just paying attention to what the other groups at Microsoft are shipping and just talking well, this to is, them. This is the college campus effect that I talked about before where once a company gets to a certain size, it's like a college campus. You know, mm-hmm. you can do everything on campus right. almost. Right. They're like self-contained ecosystems. Yep. Certainly Google is at that point. Yahoo has long been at that point. I, IBM, I, I mean, that was uh, when IBM was in its most ruinous part of it. Uh, uh, you know, th- at the time I was at Microsoft, IBM was just collapsing upon itself. And every once in a while, you would get like a manual for an IBM PC or something. And you would notice that IBM was using different words for everything. So everybody else was, would say personal computer. Even in the personal computer division at IBM, they would say you know, desktop workstation. And everybody else in the world would say hard disk or hard drive, and they would say fixed disk. And you suddenly realize they had IBM, it was like France, it had a different word for everything. Wow. And can you imagine how insular you need to be to like actually make up your own vocabulary for things that oh, other that people... Definitely, <laughs> definitely happens. I mean, I know yeah. at Microsoft, like we were a Microsoft Gold partner at Vertigo, my previous job, and right. I heard words that I'd never really heard, and they were used a lot, like... I actually got a little annoyed with it because I don't really like – I like to use the, the plainest possible language that people will understand. Yeah, right? what are and some Microsoft words? RTM, ISV. Yeah. ISV is a Microsoft word. Zero bug bounce. Ooh, I never heard of zero bug bounce. Uh, Netscape has a good word for that, zero bugs, which is funny because it's like, a, it's like zero bugs, only it's got two bugs right there <laughs> staring you in the face because Gosh. you never really get the zero bugs. Uh, yeah, yeah but it's kind of like hanging out with a bunch of snowboarders. It's like you have all this slang, and I, I guess it right. means you're a part of that community. But it's but it's more than slang. It's, it's it's sort of an insularity where other people may have other words that they use for that thing. Even uh, the word program manager, which Microsoft uses to refer to a product manager, uh, although now they just say PM because they don't want to you know draw attention to the fact that they're using the wrong word. Uh, it's something about the insularity, and I think that means that they're not really paying attention to the rest of the world quite as much as other companies do. And, and uh, to Ray Ozzie's credit, he does not have that disease at all. He's really good at paying attention to what's going on. Far more than right. any other Microsoft exec. How did we get on this? Okay, so did, was there some other point about this uh, porn recognition? Could well, you just, no, I uh, thought the discussion yeah. was good. It's, it's one of those, it's kind of a discussion question, but it's okay because it's about programming. So I, I like it as a question. I think it's appropriate to ask on Stack Overflow. It's interesting. So I the, mean, the, the, it seems like the answer might be, you know, what other information do you have besides the picture? So, for example, if you know the URL the picture came from, what country it's in, whether you'd have to pay to get it, <laughs> uh, what other words are on the page, how many other pictures are on it, if you click it, do you get a little movie? Um, there, there's sort of a lot of other clues there that you could use. And if you fed all that into a Bayesian algorithm, you might have a slightly better result than if you just looked at the bits in the pixel. Right. There, there was some good discussion in, in the post about sort of the pros and cons of even trying to attack this at all. And one of my favorite answers to a lot of questions is like, why are we even asking this question? Like, to, <laughs> like why, why do we even need to do this, right? Like the whole concept of, okay, why don't you just crowdsource your mm-hmm. porn filter and say, look, if you find something in your direction, because that's what we do, right? We have an offensive flag mm-hmm. um, on Stack Overflow, and I would not even attempt, because uh, Jeff Dalgas had brought up using some algorithmic stuff to try to detect if stuff is spam. Like you could use even a Bayesian system, right? Mm-hmm. You train it. That works that pretty stuff. good, yeah. 
And but I, but I said like, why even bother? I mean, there's going to be enough people that click on things that are offensive, and I don't know. Once you get into filtering and algorithms, I don't know. It just seems a little dangerous, and people ultimately end up being the safer choice, which I guess is the mm-hmm. revelatory thing about that decision is saying, you know what? We're going to say the computers aren't good at this at all. And as a programmer, that's not something you ever really want to say. It's like you love writing code. So to answer the computer shouldn't do this is anathema, right? You would never really say that. But I think that's the mindset I think eventually you have to develop is you can have some algorithmic stuff. Like one that I found that works really well on WordPress is if you put too many hyperlinks in a post, Mm -hmm. the odds of you being spam are very, 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 very high. Interesting. Uh, yeah. But even then, it fails. Even then, that fails because yeah. I've had people that have made completely legitimate comments on a blog post. I'm talking about the uh, Stack Overflow blog at this point, where WordPress has this implementation. Uh, but even then, it catches it catches people out, which is kind of a disappointment. The the so. the nature of of most Bayesian spam filtering algorithms is that they're going to find some definite yeses, some definite noes, you know, definite spams, definite hams, and then maybe 10% maybes, which a human has to look at. And uh, the the only reason you might want this on something like Stack Overflow is if the spam ever got to such a high level that, you know, you couldn't even go to the new page without seeing 98% spam before, like, humans flag them all. And that's just sort of already starting to put too much of a burden on humans for, for, for some things. I don't think we're going to get there very soon. But, uh, for example, on the Jolent Software discussion group, there's um, – uh, what what happens is you don't get the occasional spam. You get somebody who's written a little bot to post the same spam every hour. Right. And eventually it just tires out the, the humans that are that are able to, to quickly filter it out. And uh, you kind of wish you could just make make rules. Um, by the way, it's not uh, – I kept saying Dartmouth is wired, but apparently Dartmouth is not wired. Cornell is wired. That was the name of the okay. uh, memo, so that'll make it easier for you to find. And it was Steven Sinoski, who's now in charge of the whole Windows project. And he's uh, one of the good guys at Microsoft. Um, on the other hand, uh, you do sort of wonder if he's really got in his blood things like uh, the way Facebook is used on campus today or the way – I don't even know what's next. I think I'm probably an old, old person by saying that Facebook is <laughs> the, the latest cool thing. Right. You know, you brought up a, another point that – came up on Stack Overflow. I'm just thinking of Stack Overflow stuff because I, mm. I really enjoy browsing Stack Overflow for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And yeah, and one of the questions that came up was, what do project managers do all day? <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to find this and I felt like my search was failing so I used Google. It turns out this has been deleted. Like, oh. I didn't delete it. So either the original owner must have deleted it or I don't think it reached the offensive threshold. So I think actually the original user deleted this post. And wh- one of the... Well, I can tell you what project, Yeah, yeah. One of the catch. I'm going to go ahead and undelete this so you can actually find it. Um, one of the catch 22s for us is because people can delete their own stuff at any time. I mean, that's one of the freedoms we give you. Is like you can decide to delete everything you've ever put on Stack Overflow. That's mm-hmm. completely up to you. Yeah. Uh, but the downside, if you delete at the question level, you implicitly delete the answers as well because we have no way to attach just a, a loose answer. Of course. When there's no question. Yeah, so people have mailed me and kind of objected to this, and I agree with them because I find that. People delete their own stuff, I think, a little too much. I mean, I, I guess I was worried that people wouldn't want to ever delete their own stuff, but the, I find the opposite to be true now. People tend to over-delete their stuff. Um, and I don't know why this guy deleted this question, because it's actually pretty good. It's got 17 answers. Uh, some of them have 39, 40 votes. So it's a useful question, I think. Um, and the reason yeah, you know, I brought The number two was, answer here is very good. I'm going to move it up. <laughs> 
The uh, oh, the really long number two answer. Yeah. Toto files answer. Oh, it's a thirty-six. You just voted for it. Nice. Yep. I'll vote for it too. See, All right. Crowd effect. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, and if we both vote down John Topley's answer. No, no, no. I already voted up John. That's Simon's answer, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Up. John just edited it. Okay. Well, I still think his answer is the best because you should talk to people. Like, if you don't understand what your teammate does, why don't you ask him what yeah, he yeah, does? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, uh, that's, that's, like a, that's fine, but that's like a meta answer. That's like an RTFM answer. And no, it's I, nice I, to have a no, canonical no. answer in there, too. Well, yeah, they're both good. They're both good answers, and actually, this is an example of the system working. Here's my, you know, here's my feeling about project managers, <laughs> and I'm gonna now, uh, I'm, I can, I can just feel the people getting their fountain, the project managers of the world getting their fountain pens already. <laughs> right. It's just like as I say this, they're pulling out a sheet of letterhead from their letterhead drawer, getting ready to dash off an angry, an angry letter to me. Uh, yeah. In, uh, in, in with their fountain pens. Um, they're gonna Gantt chart you into oblivion. You're gonna be sorry. Yeah. You know, I think that one one of the things that, that that's interesting is that uh, project managers traditionally are brought on because you have a team of yahoos, and, and this is this is just as true in construction or in building an oil rig or any kind of project as it is, or you know, uh, uh, you know, any kind of making of anything, making a new car at, at General Motors or designing the, the Boeing seven eighty seven Dreamliner. Uh, uh, as, as it is in the software industry, um, project managers are brought in because management says, hey, you yahoos, either just working and working and working and they never get the thing done. And um, nobody knows how long it's going to take. And if you don't know how long something's going to take and you can't kind of control that a little bit, then the, 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 this really sucks from a business perspective. I mean, if you think of a typical business project, you invest some money and then you make some money back. And the money you make back, the return on investment might be, oh, I don't know, double the amount of money you invest, and then it's a good investment. But if the investment doubles because it took you twice as long to do this thing as you thought it would, then you lost all your profit on the thing. So this is, this is bad for businesses to make decisions in the face of poor information about how long the project is going to take. Uh, and so uh, keeping a project on track and on schedule and stuff is really important. And it's so important that they started hiring people to do this. And they said, okay, you're the project manager. Make sure that we're on track. And these project managers were, you know, just bright college kids with spreadsheets and, and Microsoft Project and clipboards. And they pretty much had to go around with no authority whatsoever and walk around the project and talk to the people and find out where things were up to. And they spent all their time creating and maintaining these gigantic Gantt charts, which everybody else ignored. So the, the Gantt charts and the Microsoft project and all those project schedules and all that kind of stuff was uh, an artifact created by a kind of low-level person, although it might be accurate depending on how good that, that low-level person was. But it was still sort of like this output-only thing from the current project. You know, where are we up to? How much have we done? How much time have we spent? Uh, what's left, who's working on what. Um, and then for some reason, these relatively low-level people who were not actually domain experts. So like if they're at Boeing, they don't know anything about designing planes. And if they're on the software team, they're not programmers, they're project managers. And they don't know anything about writing code. Uh, they, you know, they started getting blamed when things went wrong. And they started clamoring for more responsibility and more authority to actually make changes and to actually influence things and say, hey, Joe's taking too long here. We should get Mary to do this task. She's not busy. And um, the truth is that they started getting kind of frustrated because they were sort of low-level secretarial-like members of their teams. And they kind of wanted to move their profession. They wanted to kind of move up the scale professionally. And so they created the Project Management Institute or whatever it's called. And they created this thing called 
Oh, I don't even know. But but they they created a whole professional way to learn to be a professional project manager. And they decided to try to make it something a little bit fancier than just the kid with the clipboard that has to maintain these Gantt charts all day long. And uh, you can kind of tell that this is what happens because um, the first thing the project managers will tell you about their profession is that the most important thing is that they have the authority to actually change things. And they, that they're the ones who have all the skills as to how to get a project back on track or to keep a project on track and therefore they need to have the authority to exercise these skills otherwise they'll never get anything done they'll never be able to keep the project on track they, they don't just want to be stenographers keeping you know writing things down uh, and the trouble is they don't actually have the domain skills that's why they are project managers uh and so if you're working on a software project, you know how to bring it in on time. You've got to cut features, and you know what features to cut because you understand software intrinsically, and you know what things are slow and what things are fast and you know where you might be able to combine two features into one feature or where you might be able to take a shortcut. Uh, and that's the stuff that a good developer knows, but that's not the stuff that a project manager knows. And in a construction project, you know, it's the, constru- it's the architects and, the, and the, the, the head contractors and stuff who kind of know where shortcuts can be taken and, and, and how to bring a project in on time and not the project managers. So the project managers don't really have any of the right skills it, it, to, 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 um, to affect the project. And so they inevitably get really frustrated and everybody kind of treats them like secretaries or treats them like annoying boy, boy with clipboard. Um, when they, they really don't actually have a leadership role in the project. And, and they're not going to be able to because they don't have the domain expertise. And no matter how much they learn about project management, no matter how many books they read and how many certificates they get, and no matter how long they've been doing project management, if they don't know about software and software development, uh, you know, if they don't have that experience, they're not going to be able to, you know, no, they're, they're always going to be second-class citizens and they're never going to be able to fix a broken project. Right. Yeah, Sorry, that's, rant. Wow. that's a great, well, that's a great summary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, certainly I've had that experience. And I think, you know, as a programmer, we value technical skills. And it, it really is hard to take people seriously who don't even know enough to know if you're telling them complete right. yes. Right. Yeah. That's the danger. And you have to have somebody, if you want somebody in that role, that's fine. But it has to be somebody who has a programming background or somebody you can tell when people are just telling them crap or lying to them or right. not being straight with them. And so you just have to have some technical expertise, I think, is probably the key. That's the most important thing, you know, because for every developer, every developer figures this out on day number five, which is all you got to do if there's a feature you don't want to do is you just have to say that's going to take six years. And if there's a feature you really want to do, you just have to tell everybody it's going to take two weeks, you know? No, no, no. Joel, you say it's going to take six to eight weeks. Six to eight. Six to eight. You know, we had, uh, I, I, I'm almost embarrassed because I sort of laughed at him, but we had a programmer here at Fog Creek um, who uh, um, wanted to rewrite everything in the new programming language. Or, long, long story. But um, basically, he had this sort of plan to re-implement the, the, uh, the complete underpinnings of Fog Creek, of, of Fog Bugs. Uh, which was basically a complete rewrite of Wasabi to be a .NET language and porting a bunch of stuff. And I, and I said, okay, how long is it going to take? And he said with a straight face, two weeks. And I said, ha! <laughs> <That's ridiculous. laughs> you probably think I was born yesterday. <laughs> wow. We did well, do it. You know what, uh, I would it say at that point, months. go for it. It took if, the whole team six could... months. Wow. 
But uh, but I said that you're saying two weeks here, you lost all credibility in, in, in arguing on it. You, 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 unfortunately, because you tried to pull that over on me and saying that we could completely replace the language in which Fogbugs was written with a new compiler and get it all working uh, in two weeks, I, you know, I no longer <laughs> trust trust anything you say about how long right. things take because it's obvious that you're trying to manipulate me to do the things that you want to do. Right. Well, we should probably cut it off here because I don't want to go too long. Ah, yeah. We've been talking for days. But uh, we did get a couple of questions. I had a whole bunch of questions. I didn't get to use one of mine. But uh, I'll, I'll do that next week. And uh, we should yeah, remind uh, our listeners that there's a podcast hotline which you can call in with questions. We'll try to take a couple next week as well. And the... Um, dum da da dum do you know the number for the podcast hotline? I don't, but it's in the show notes every time. It is in the show notes every time. Blog.stackoflow.com. Here it is. 646-826-3879. That's 646-826-3879. Or you can email an MP3 or Og Vorbis file, uh, which you record yourself, to um, podcast at stackoverflow.com. In the meantime, uh, there's a wiki up where you can uh, write down transcripts of uh, all this gibberish that Jeff and I have been talking at each other without listening to one another. And um, that is also um, linked to from uh, the show notes, which are always at blog.stackoverflow.com. Any other announcements? No, I think that's it. All right. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.